Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'd like to welcome Dr. Gigi Kay of the American Fonduke in Morocco to discuss her case report of a locally invasive melanoma in the internal laminae of the hoof of a bay mule. Hello. Hello, Lizzie. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I'm always pleased to talk about our patients and our mules. You're very welcome. Um, Well, I thought this case was a really interesting and unusual presentation of a condition that's very commonly encountered by equine practitioners. Please could you tell us a little bit about the clinical presentation of the case and how you came to the diagnosis of melanoma? Yeah, it was really interesting because this case presented with an owner uh, who, had, uh, who had owned him for several years and had uh, reported that he'd been lame for about two months. And he, uh, on presentation, was three out of five lame. And when we looked at the hoof, uh, he was positive to hoof testers. He blocked to um, a Palmer Digital Nerve Block. And when I started cleaning out the hoof, I was initially thinking this is probably going to be a white line disease or a stone in the hoof or something. I knew it wasn't going to be an abscess because it had been there for so long. But when I started cleaning out the hoof, I was very surprised to find the entire white line covered in, sort of filled up with a black, creamy material. And um, that didn't really make sense to me at all. I'd never seen that kind of presentation. At that point, I did send photographs to uh, several specialists. We have a lot of specialist support out here because we're professionally quite isolated. And so I have a sort of telemedicine system of referrals to some of the specialists all around the world. So I sent these photographs after I'd cleaned out the hoof, I'd say, and you could quite clearly see a zebra appearance to the white line so that the external lamina were not affected. They were white, but the internal lamina were affected and they were black. Uh, Well, that's a really unusual thing to see in the hoof. And so I sent these photographs of the soul to a number of specialists. One came back saying that this was definitely white line disease, even though it was black. And one came back saying that they'd seen this kind of presentation after laminitis, severe laminitis. But this didn't look like either white line disease, which we see a lot of, or laminitis. The animal was unilaterally lame and no indication of laminitis. And I was still thinking, hmm, I wonder what this black substance is. So I put some under a microscope and saw immediately that there were cells which were looking black, very similar to what you get when you see a melanoma or when you do an FNA on a melanoma. And uh, so then I wrote back to the specialist and said, mm, do you think there's any chance this might be a melanoma? And of course, no, the answer was no, there's no chance this could be a melanoma. Anyway, I started debriding it and we debrided quite far. And uh, because of what I'd seen under the microscope, I was still had this very much in my mind that it might be a melanoma. So I guess that's, that was the presentation and that was my immediate uh, initial thoughts. 
Sure, that sounds really unusual. So did you hope when you debrided it that that was going to be curative for the mule initially? Well, because I still really didn't have any experience of, uh, of this kind of scenario in a foot, I, I don't think I knew. I thought that if I could get rid of whatever it was that was causing this uh, and get back to normal tissue, I thought that it would, and because it wasn't that lame, I mean, it was three out of five lame, but in our circumstance, that's not catastrophic. So I thought, yes, I was quite hopeful. And I debrided as far as I dared in the initial debridement. And I thought, well, I'll leave a little bit, but, you know, if this is some sort of infective process, I think we gave it an IVRP, then it will, you know, it will respond. And initially, it did respond reasonably well. And new granulation tissue grew um, around the areas that I'd debrided. It was only after a, another couple of weeks that I realized that the granulation tissue actually just covered uh, continuing, ongoing black matter underneath. Sure. Um, and you took uh, samples didn't you, um, which histologically uh, suggested that the melanoma was actually benign. Um, what were these histological features that kind of indicated that? Well, I think partly as the mitotic index. I think that it's a very difficult uh, field and there's a lot of hypotheses in there. Is the melanoma really a continuum from, from benign to malignant? Or are there four separate entities, as suggested by Valentine in his paper in the late 90s? I think that uh, is probably a little bit early to know. And I think that although the other three cases, the other three case reports of melanomas in the foot were very aggressive and appeared to uh, have mitotic figures and be... Um, be uh, going into other parts of the foot and other parts of the limb, the distal limb. It's true that on, uh, on post-mortem, ours was not doing that. It did. It was affecting the internal laminae, and it had affected some of P3. So one could say, well, that looks like a sort of a spread or a malignancy and not so benign as all that. It's not just sitting in one organ. But there were no mitotic figures and um, other, other indicators of malignancy. So do you think this means, as Valentine suggests, that the four syndromes he describes exists as more of a continuum? I think that's difficult for me to say just on the basis of this one case that I happen to have sent off. I mean, certainly my experience of melanomas is that you can go from seeing one small nodule on the base of a tail to having an opening up at post-mortem and having the entire animal riddled with melanoma such there's more melanoma than there is animal so it, it certainly seems and it certainly seems to be a disease that can go uh can become very malignant and go and affect many different organ systems and this one remember affected not only if affected the internal lamina it also seemed to have affected p3 what it didn't affect and this was really interesting was it did not affect the external lamina at all and that's why we got this very marked zebra appearance of the white line. So you mentioned in the paper that it could possibly also have been to do with the um, tumour causing a pressure necrosis um, of P3. Do you think that's likely? 
Yes, I, I think that it is perhaps quite likely, um, or possibly an ischemic necrosis. I mean, if the laminae are being uh, affected, you would expect some vascular changes. And so that's what I had initially thought. I wonder if this is ischemic necrosis, particularly as the affected portion was very much the tip of P3 rather than the whole of P3. And uh, which the um, when I looked at the sole of the foot, the, the, it was clear that the melanoma had gone around the entire circumference of the foot. Well, that's quite astonishing, really, that it was lateral, medial, and dorsal. So why was only a very small portion of P3 affected? Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, another point I thought was interesting about the paper um, was when you talked about the, the treatment options. Um, I know you mentioned chemotherapy um, using intralesional cisplatin, um, as an option that was considered but ultimately rejected. Um, when do you consider it an appropriate therapy to use for melanoma? So we've had some success using cisplatin, and obviously cisplatin has um, ha has a lot of dangers in using it, and we take a we take all reasonable precautions when we're using it. But uh, there definitely is a downside um, in terms of. Um, Human, the human fact, the human safety factor in using cisplatin. We're now using carboplatin a lot more. Um, have I? I've had some success. I'd say about fifty percent success. I remember I treated a melanoma in the ear, in the ear canal of a mule, with a lot of success. It disappeared. I've treated one or two tail melanomas with cisplatin. I haven't. I've only just started using the carboplatin, so I can't tell you what uh, what yet the results are or what my assessment is. Um, so yeah, I mean chemotherapy, obviously, in the foot of a mule. I don't think, or in the foot in the hoof capsule, anyway. I think that would have been too difficult to get in, and it's all already very difficult in a melanoma, which is in any other location, but then this melanoma in the foot, trying to inject up up into those areas would have been quite difficult. If I'd put it on locally, I don't think it would have had much effect. Sure. Um, the melanoma vaccine was also something else that I wanted to mention since it's been gaining popularity in the UK. And is that something you might have considered using? Do you have any experience with the success rates? Well, I mean, I was interested that you mentioned it because I haven't had any experience with it at all. I ha did read a little bit about it, but I have no experience. Ours is a working equid charity hospital. We're in the middle of the, uh, the deserts in Morocco, if you like, and already sourcing uh, the normal sort of range of equine medicines is already very challenging. And, um, and also getting owners to come back for vaccines. I, I assume this vaccine has a, a, series of, um, a series of days of injection. So even, inje even vaccinating against tetanus, to tell you the honest truth, it's very difficult to see an animal one day and then to get it back a month later. None of these animals have names. They've got no way of being identified. An owner may have three mules and, uh, and he'll sell them three weeks later. And so there's a very high turnaround of these working equids among their own owners. Getting animals back to finish a course of vaccination is very difficult. 
I can imagine. Um, I also thought what an interesting discussion point that you brought up in the paper was the low prevalence of melanomas amongst donkeys and mules that's reported in the literature. Um, is this consistent with your experience as someone who works with donkeys and mules all the time? Certainly in donkeys, I've never seen a melanoma. And when I um, finally got the diagnosis on this case, I spoke to the donkey sanctuary, a friend of mine works there, and she said that in a, a series of post, a post-mortem series of something like 350 donkeys, I believe there was one melanoma, which is astonishing because many of those were grey donkeys. And I think there's only been one case report of a, of a melanoma in a donkey. And that's certainly my experience. I don't recall ever having seen a melanoma in a donkey. So as we see, we see about a third of our population is donkeys, a third mules and a third of horses. So we see the, the entire range of the species. We see quite a few... Um, melanomas in mules, always gray mules, and in the, in the normal positions, usually under the tail. I think, it's, I think I've seen maybe one or two in the parotid region and a couple, interestingly enough, in the ear canal. And then, of course, we see them in the horses, as one would expect. But really, I think this is the first time I've seen a melanoma in an animal that wasn't gray. And it's the first time, obviously, that I've seen a melanoma in a hoof. But it's not the first time I've seen a melanoma in a mule. I think they're reasonably common in mules, just almost vanishingly rare in donkeys. Wow, so that really does make this case <laughs> really interesting and unusual. Thank you very much, Dr. Kay, for discussing your paper. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, and thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for talking about it. It's always delightful to share our, our cases and our patients. Thank you. Thanks. Very pleased to have with me today Dr. April Horble, and she's going to be talking to us about her case report, head and neck abscessation and thrombophlebitis following cheese tooth extraction in a pony. Hi, April. Hi. Thanks for joining us today and um, I thought this was a, an interesting case report for us to discuss. It obviously picks out some interesting uh, aspects of sort of complications associated with cheek tooth extraction. Um, so I thought one of the interesting places for us to start, at the, at the beginning of the article you mentioned some of the local complications that are, are quite common in um, cheek tooth extraction. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered why um, oral extraction is, is preferable in this context. That's something you put quite a lot of emphasis on in the introduction of the report. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of cheek tooth extraction in the horse, yes, complication with oral extraction is relatively common. Um, and right now it's, it's put at somewhere around eight to 10% typically in, in multiple studies. Although there is another study that um, will be coming out in the near future, I believe, um, a multi-center study from the UK, as far as I understand it, re-looking at that. However, um, the complications typically associated with oral extraction are relatively minor. 
um, post-extraction sequestration of the alveolus, for example, or um, an, a non-healing draining tract uh, with a sequestrum or something of that nature. Um, the complications with more invasive surgical extraction techniques, like um, a transbuccal extraction, a, a true transbuccal extraction, um, can be quite more uh, severe. And even the complications associated with a minimally invasive transbuccal extraction, which is certainly more popular these days, um, those can also be more difficult or time-consuming to manage. So although there are complications with oral extraction, that remains the, the preferred method since the complications are relatively minor to deal with typically. Okay, that's that's super. Thanks for, for going into that. But the, I guess the presentation that this pony had was a little bit unusual for what we typically see for some of those sort of local complications. So could you just give us a sort of summary of uh, how the pony presented and what your sort of initial findings were when, when this case presented? Yeah, absolutely. The pony had, um, it, it was an older pony um, that had lost several teeth um, and had several teeth extracted prior to our dealing with the case. Um, and the pony was underwent the extraction several days prior to referral um, with its own regular veterinarian. Um, and at the time, though, that it presented to us, it came to us because it was it was more physically, systemically ill at that time. Um, there was significant swelling around the mandible close to the area where the extraction was performed, but not right at the site. And the pony was unable to open its jaw at that point and had already begun to lose weight um, at the time of presentation, even though the extraction had just happened a couple days before. Um, when the pony arrived with us, it had significant swelling over its jaw, and it also was, you know, tachycardic and tachypnic and obviously in a lot of discomfort and also was seemed to be dehydrated. Um, even though we sedated it heavily, at the time, um, we were unable to open its mouth more than a few centimeters because of the significant swelling and the pain that the pony was undergoing. And so uh, we had to really uh, take take some interesting techniques and use a scope to look in the pony's mouth and try to figure out what was going on. Um, so we used a scope to look in the alveolus of the tooth, and it appeared to not be healing at that time. And so the kind of the, the colloquial or common term for that is a, a, dry, a dry socket. Um, and so that's a, a non-healing alveolus, um, which is, it's actually relatively common in human dentistry, mm -hmm. um, less common in uh, equine dentistry, particularly when there's not an associated complication. So this pony didn't have a sequestrum or, you know, the, the lining of the alveolus appeared to be relatively normal, but the gingiva was not healing over the alveolus and had actually uh, retracted an exposed bone um, of the mandible at that point. And so typically in people, that's very painful. In horses, it doesn't seem to be directly painful in the alveolus itself, um, but it certainly impedes healing and then can lead to more of the complications that I just discussed. Okay, great. Um, so after you had admitted the horse, I guess uh, a further progression was that the, the pony became pyrexic um, and maybe that wasn't explained by what you'd found already on your oral right. exam. Um, so do you want to just discuss what your sort of findings were when you, when you went and investigated that sort of episode yeah. of pyrexia a little bit more? 
So just to clarify a little bit, when we we did the oral exam and then the pony eventually had a CT scan, um, there were roots of the tooth remaining in the alveolus, but it's very important to note that the tooth, first of all, was not extracted because of apical infection and that the roots actually were, were um, kind of attached firmly into the alveolus, into the mandible, and were, were quiescent at that point. So this was an older horse that was undergoing tooth extraction because of severe periodontal disease. Mm-hmm. Typically, if the roots break off in that kind of extraction and they are left behind, as long as they are, are, are dead, essentially, at that point, and there is no vital material left within them, and there's no evidence of apical infection, typically those do not cause an issue. There, it's it's like having a, a completely um, quiet and and you know un- unreactive object within mm-hmm. the socket. So yeah. that wasn't a concern to us. However, you know the pony upon its presentation and then in the evening following is when the pyrexia developed. And that's why we did dive further into looking at those tooth roots. Um, however, the, the pyrexia that developed was, was pretty severe, mm. um, a 40 degrees Celsius temperature. Um, and the pony really became more sick, I guess is the, the best way to look at it. Generally, the tachycardia was increasing, um, you know, and, and really started to show signs of sepsis at that point, even with some peritoneal fluid that was tapped appearing to be a bit turbid, although was was normal otherwise with protein and lactate within normal limits and things like that. Um, so, you know, we were lucky enough as well that just commencing some general antibiotic and anti-inflammatory treatment was able to, to stem that pyrexia yep. and really make the pony a lot brighter and everything like that. However, we were a bit confused at that point um, as to what the exact cause of the pyrexia was. Next thing to discuss, we obviously localized some pathology in the area of the sort of cervical region as well in, in the head, but maybe not an ex- direct extension of pathology within the, the alveolus of that tooth. So do you want to explain a little bit what that pathology that you identified was and how that maybe developed into that region if it's not a true extension directly from there? Right. So yeah, there was never a sign of anything directly attached to the alveolus, right? So it was all regional and local in that area. However, the alveolus itself remained quiet, non-reactive the whole time um, and never developed any further signs of infection in, in the bone of the alveolus or anything for that nature. So really the first thing we saw was the masseter swelling on the side of the face close to the alveolus, um, which really then extended towards the jugular groove and, and that whole whole kind of linguofacial region, really. Um, And that progressed then when we were examining it with ultrasound, we were able to see abscesses um, in the masseters and abscesses um, within the jugular and surrounding surrounding the jugular, essentially at that point. Um, so it was all local or regional at that point, I would say, kind of close to the alveolus, but never directly associated with that alveolus. Okay. And in, in terms of how that developed in relation to bacteremia and systemic mm-hmm. complications in, in dental extraction, that's not something that's very commonly identified in horses. Certainly there's been studies that have looked at bacteremia, mm-hmm. um, but is that something that maybe we can learn a bit more from, from other species? Is it more common with other species to see that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in horses, yes, we know that and, and have found that bacteremia is very common um, within one minute, essentially, of gingival penetration in an extraction procedure. The horses have a generalized bacteremia. Um, however, in all of those studies, the horses um, cleared it themselves, no complications associated with it, no antibiotics ever given, et cetera. Um, however, um, those horses were younger, systemically healthy horses. And, and this horse was, you know, older, had been treated for PPID for quite a long time. And so uh, this horse was was not a normal horse, let's say, or, or starting off in a place of, of good health, um, especially it had severe periodontal disease as well associated mm-hmm. with this too. Um, so in other species, dogs and humans in particular, um, there's been even severe bacterial endocarditis associated with dental infection. Um, there's been severe cranial disease in up to a quarter of humans that have dental disease. They have some sort of intracranial disease actually mm-hmm. associated with that bacteremia. Um, and they've shown endocarditis in a small amount of dogs as well associated with dental infection. Um, so in horses, nothing's ever been shown directly associated with dental infection systemically like that. However, Mm -hmm. there has been evidence of meningitis and and sepsis in that intracranial region that's been associated with sinusitis and other diseases in the the head, essentially, although nothing directly related to dental infection has been written about. Okay. And so that's obviously something important that you picked up on there, that this this horse obviously had um, PPID. uh, Mm -hmm. And obviously those two things tie in a lot with that population of horses with or older horses having uh, dental disease and of, often may have PPID as well. So I just yes. wondered if you'd had experience, of, you know, whether this is a bit of a tip of the iceberg situation and you've come across other patients with PPID that have uh-huh. maybe been difficult to manage with um, dental disease or whether that's a factor that you've recognized. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's something that's, you know, recognized across the equine veterinary dental spectrum that horses with PPID have both difficulty healing from from many surgical procedures, of course, Mm -hmm. um, but but those in the sinus and and the mouth are those that are most familiar with at least. Um, and certainly horses with PPID have a more difficult time getting those under control um, and tend to have more complications in my experience. Um, in addition, non-healing oral ulcers are a common finding um, with horses with PPID mm-hmm. and then in combination with periodontal disease um, as well, because of course those horses tend to be older. Um, and so it's, it's maybe putting a bit of the cart before the horse, let's say, or something like that to say that, you know, periodontal disease and PPID are directly related, but I think it's certainly, they certainly are seen together frequently. Okay. And obviously this, this became quite a a complicated case and required quite a lot of management, Um, but it'd be interesting if you could give us a sort of run through of um, how that sort of progressed and what management steps were taken uh, mm-hmm. to, to resolve the, the pathologies that you found in addition to the, to the original presentation. Right. Absolutely. Um, 
So, you know, nothing further was really done with the, the alveolus of the tooth. To, to be clear, you know, we did not have to do anything more with that um, as the problem itself had kind of moved on regionally to a different part of the horse. Um, so we had to drain the abscess in the masseter region. Um, the horse was on systemic antibiotic and anti-inflammatory treatment for quite a time. Um, and then in addition, the, the jugular vein moved on from having these, you know, focal um, hyperechoic sort of abscess regions to thrombosing. And so then we had to also do a thrombectomy to remove the thrombus and, and the clot at that point that was quite infected um, and abscessed itself and, and perform a thrombectomy on that jugular vein. And following all of that treatment, then um, the horse really progressed quite quickly and, and recovered quite quickly after that. Okay. And that, the sort of long-term outcome for that horse, how, how did that progress? So following up several months later, the horse was doing well. Um, never, you know, had to intervene again following its discharge from the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, we did attempt when we were writing this paper to get back in touch with the owner uh, to find out how the horse was doing, but we were unable to do so. But at least in the, in the medium term following treatment, it was doing well. Okay, great. And I guess one of the important messages that probably people will look into from this is, does this change how you would approach a, a dental case or a, a, an older horse? Potentially it's already been diagnosed with PPID and how you'd manage those. Is that, has, yeah. has your experience with this case changed that or is that already something that you were doing differently compared to a younger horses where you were extracting teeth particularly? Mm. I think it just kind of brings brings the message home, really. This, this case was seen several years ago, and I think since that time, my take on these older horses with PPID has changed. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very important to make sure that the disease is under control if whatever you're doing dental-wise or, or other procedure-wise is elective or can be held off for a period of time. Um, because if that PPID is uncontrolled, you may experience quite a bit of difficulty getting the horse to recover from whatever procedure it is that you undertake. Um, of course, you know, in an emergency case, you have to do, you know, whatever it takes to handle that emergency. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if it is something that can be managed conservatively or that the procedure can wait until you're sure the PPID is under control, I think it is, it is well worth doing that. Okay, great. And in, in cases where we are using antimicrobials in relation to dental procedures and things, is there any evidence that we can use to, to guide us on that? And uh, especially in relation to bacteremia, if there's particular um, species that we need to be looking for? Right. So I think that um, in the dental community in general right now, there's there's a general consensus to reduce the amount of antibiotics we're using in a routine dental. Um, some people have, you know, gotten rid of their antibiotic usage entirely if the horse is systemically healthy when they're about to extract the tooth. Um, others have limited it to just a perioperative use of antibiotics surrounding infection. So just immediately before and following um, the extraction, but not using a full course, you know, a five day or a 10 day course of antibiotics anymore at this point um, has certainly come more into favor. Um, however, I think there there's kind of two camps, one that still uses them sparingly and one that doesn't use them at all if the horse is, is healthy. 
Okay, great. Well, I think that's a good place for us to sort of end things with a sort of general roundup and some maybe practical advice there for people that are extracting tea. So thank you very much for taking the time to discuss that uh, very interesting case with us. Hopefully it's highlighted some useful uh, areas that maybe people can look into a little bit further in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, April. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve.